Well, today we continue with our series, Greatness. And the question that this series is asking is how do we live a great life? How do we, how do we live a great life? Well, we choose God's will. What's God's will for you? It, God's will is God's best offer for your best life. This series is examining several passages in the New Testament that directly state it is God's will that. And today we're exploring a passage written by the team captain of Jesus' disciples, a man named Peter, who wrote in his first letter to the early church, it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. What's God's best offer for your best life? Simple. Do good. Do good. In fact, when you do good, your actions actually silence the foolish talk of ignorant people. I mean, we need this right now. We need, we need Jesus followers to live according to God's will in this season of life for us. And so what does it mean for you to do God's will? It means for you to do good. Do good and live your best life. Easy, right? Go in peace. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's what the text says. But as you dig into it, you realize quickly on that by doing God's will and choosing God's best offer, man, all of a sudden, it leads to some real hardship in this life. Some real profound hardship. And then all of a sudden, doing God's will and choosing God's best offer for your best life, when you really start living it out, sometimes it feels like a punchline. It feels like a punchline to a dirty joke, really? I, I, thought, I thought if I chose God's best offer for my best life for me, then I would feel a kind of ease in this life. That I, I, would, I would be able to walk in this life experiencing a kind of, a kind of comfort. And, and all kidding aside, some of you right now, I, I know some of you right now, you feel tired and worn down. You, you feel defeated because of doing good for a long season. Others of you might even feel alone because of following God's will and seeking to do good. And I get it, I often feel all of the above myself. I, I, feel, I feel sometimes the exhaustion and the weight of walking in God's will, doing good, and experiencing the struggle. And sometimes in my most vulnerable moments, if I'm completely honest with you, I think to myself, is following God really worth it? Is, is this really worth the struggle, the ridicule? Is it worth the exhaustion to follow after God's will and to do good in Jesus' name? Because if you follow Jesus long enough and you really take his word seriously, then I promise these hardships find you. You don't need to look for them. They find you. And when hardships arise from following Jesus, it exposes a tension that I think many of us feel. Maybe we, we don't say we believe this, but it certainly raises a tension in our life. Deep down, that shapes our behavior. A, be, a belief that says God's best offer for your best life is supposed to lead to a life of comfort, to security. It's supposed to lead to a life of ease. And my question for us today, as we seek to unpack God's will and, 
and what it means to choose God's best offer for your best life. My question for you is, what if God wants more for you than that? What if God wants more for you than comfort and ease and even success? What, what, if, what if God wants more for you than the status quo melting pot life? One day in fifth grade, my social studies teacher, Mrs. Jones, introduced us to a concept called the American melting pot. And what I remember about Mrs. Jones was that she was a real piece of work. <laughs> man, this, this lady, man, she pushed us so hard as fifth graders to, to think, to grow, to develop. I mean, just the fact that I'm referencing a conversation from fifth grade really shows as a teacher how she pushed us as a class. And she explained that a melting pot uh, culture is a blending of beliefs and worldviews into a common set of core values. And then she compared the American melting pot to what she called the American mosaic. She described this mosaic like a beautiful, ornate piece of art that gives space for each and every single worldview and ethnic background and belief system to all find their place within this ornate mosaic art like you would see hanging up on a wall or hanging on a tapestry. And after explaining the difference between these two cultures, Mrs. Jones asked the class, now class, what do you think we live in? Do you think we live in a melting pot or do you think we live in a mosaic? And I remember as a fifth grader, you know, I'm starting to kind of see the world with my eyes open. I'm starting to, you know, work out this idealism working inside of me. And so I think to myself, oh man, we live in a mosaic. And so I raised my hand along with most of the class, by the way, except for just a couple of others, and we raised our hand. We said, we live in a mosaic. And so Mrs. Jones said, okay, okay. And so she started teaching, and she showed us the reading in the book, and she showed us in her lecture that, in fact, we're wrong, that we live in this giant silver pot that holds all of us together. And I've since learned as I've grown older that, man, she couldn't be more right our culture is so much more complex than this great big silver pot. But generally, there are these common held set of values that make up our vast culture. And living in this melting pot, it ain't easy because we feel the tension of the heat of feeling melted down and, and of this blending of all these different things just kind of, just kind of collapsing on us. And we, we live in the heat of it together and we see the expression of this all over our culture. We see this in music, we see it in art, we see it in film, we see it in TV shows. In fact, just a few years ago, a hip hop song called God's Plan by an artist named Drake, I think captures the essence of this tension. Now, don't be so quick to judge Drake, all right? I, I, know, that, I know that many of you listen to Drake I mean, just by the virtue of me referencing Jake, Drake means that I, I listen to him to, you know, to some extent. So don't be too quick to judge Drake. On the one hand, the lyrics to this song, God's Plan, they, they speak to so much of what our culture, our melting pot culture values. I mean, it speaks to materialism, wealth, sex, fame, all that stuff. But on the other hand, his song raises a tension between doing good for more good in return and the bad things that continue to happen in our life. And on the one hand, we hold this belief, or at least the melting pot does, that if we do good, then, man, we're going to get some good in return. But that belief directly conflicts with this other side of reality that bad things just keep happening. 
And I think his song seems to have resonated with our culture because it's been viewed on YouTube more than 1.3 billion times. That's billion with a B. And his song debuted at Billboard Top 100 as number one, and it stayed at number one for several weeks in a row. In fact, the song, get this, it even followed, the music video to the song follows Drake around in our city, in Miami, as he gives away a million dollars doing this incredible good in our city, giving it away to random strangers, giving it away to UM, giving it away to the Miami-Dade Fire Department. I mean, he does amazing acts of good for our city, no doubt about that. But he raps that as he's doing these things, as he lives his life according to this particular way, that bad things keep happening to him. For copyright reasons, I wanted to show a clip, but I couldn't. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you a little snippet myself. Now, I, don't, don't worry, I'm not, I'm not gonna wrap it. I'm not gonna wrap it, don't, don't worry. I'm not gonna do it. You don't wanna hear that. But I will say just a little piece of it. The, the meat and the potatoes of it come in his course, and he says, God's plan. I can't do this on my own, someone watching this close. I mean, here Drake reminisces, I believe, on his Christian upbringing in Toronto. He's, he's talking about, he's, he's almost pining for this idea that perhaps, just perhaps, God comes close to him, that God hears him, that maybe even God participates in his life. But then the very next line in the song says, I might go down as G-O-D. And so immediately there's this tension in his rap that, that contradicts the other. Is God up close and personal with him, or does Drake view himself as God? Again, don't judge Drake. In fact, the tension that he highlights is the tension of the human experience. In, Gen- in Genesis 3.5, the, the very first temptation of the evil one was that he would make us like God. Not not like God in terms of God's likeness, but like God in the sense that we will become like the God of our own life and that we will be divorced from the power of God's identity in our life, the image of God that he created us with our lives and instead that we would choose to sit on the throne of our own life. And so the tension that Drake highlights in the song, I love it because this is the tension of the human experience and it seems that he feels it too. This is also the basis of what's called secular humanism. Secular humanism believes in no God at all and lists the individual experience of each individual as the prime way through which we see our lives. But then Drake says, I make sure that Northside E, you know, that's where he grew up in Toronto, so he's throwing it back to his hometown, and still bad things. It's a lot of bad things that they wish in on me. Do good and believe that doing good leads to more good, yet, Drake's highlighting this tension that, man, these bad things keep happening to me. And in fact, Drake, just in this one section, touches on three worldviews, and his, his song as a whole touches on a couple of additional worldviews, but three worldviews in particular of humanism, deism, and universalism. Drake's rap refers to multiple contradicting worldviews in this song. And probably without even realizing it, because this song really does embody the essence of our melting pot, doesn't it? I mean, if you were to go, I, I would encourage you to go and listen to it and, and to see it for yourself. I mean, this song embodies the characteristics of what we value within our melting pot society. Now, again, I'm not, I'm not judging Drake. I'm not criticizing Drake. In fact, I really am thankful for his honesty and vulnerability in his song to raise the tensions that we experience in our, in our own lives. But what I am criticizing 
And what I want to invite you to think critically about today, at least for today, is how living in the melting pot shapes what we believe about Jesus. In fact, let me, let me invite you to consider this question. Do you believe that choosing God's best offer for your best life is supposed to lead you into a life of comfort, into a life of security, into a life of ease or even success? And if you do believe this, then what led you to that belief? And I I don't want to confront you with this question. I just want to invite you to consider it with me. Just ask yourself this question. What led you to believe that? According to a Plugged In article, and I, I highly commend Plugged In to every parent in this room, Plugged In is a resource provided by Focus on the Family and helps families make wise, faithful decisions about entertainment. One Plugged In article said about God's plan, Drake references the tragic death of a friend so honest, but he doesn't shy away from the shallow relationships with women. And when it comes to God, it's unclear whether he's referencing God in his own way or whether that reference might just be to himself, making God's plan sound more like Drake's plan. Man, how honest. How often do we get churned up in the same thing in our own life? I mean, no wonder Drake and so many others, especially I would would even say even Jesus followers, get confused about what God's best offer for your best life means. The belief that doing good leads to more good in return stems from a much deeper belief that God's will is ultimately a will about providing comfort, about providing ease. And I call this kind of belief, I call it bacon bit theology. It's it's something that I've I'd termed a long time ago when I was in student ministry, but I would call this stuff bacon bit theology. You know, if you if you look at a bacon bit, you know, this stuff ain't worth nothing. You know, in fact, if you purchase bacon bits, which no judgment if you do. I mean, who doesn't like a good bacon bit on your salad? I mean, it's okay. But if you look at a bacon bit, the ingredient, the sole ingredient is texturized soy flour. That's a lot different from this beautiful piece of meat right here. <laughs> this beautiful piece of meat is not texturized soy flour. But so often we choose the bacon bit. And I think it's the same way in our, in our melting pot, in our silver melting pot, where we choose just almost almost because we just swim in these waters that, oh yeah, this, is, this just is the way that it is. This is, what, this is what Jesus taught. This is what God says about certain things. When in reality, where it's just an imitation of the real thing. What's the real thing, you might ask, the real thing we read in Matthew chapter five, in Jesus's own words, in one of his most profound teachings in all of the gospels, he says this, blessed are you, You, when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad in those things, Jesus says, (laughs) because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And then if that's not enough, if you look behind the word blessed, the original Greek translates that word into happy. Happy are you when you face these things. So another way to interpret this passage would be happy are you when people insult you and persecute you. I mean, if you struggle with these words, then you're in good company with probably every Jesus follower who's ever lived. I mean, these are hard 
words. It's a hard teaching that completely goes against the melting pot. Early in my pastoral ministry, I, I received this kind of this really unique opportunity to attend a small gathering of young leaders uh, who just started their ministry to sit and have a lunch with Pastor Rick Warren. Some of you who don't know who Pastor Rick Warren is, he's the founder of Saddleback Church, one of the most influential churches in our world. And he, he sat with us and he shared some wisdom with us for about an hour over lunch. And, and then he opened some time up for Q&A. And I'll never forget what this one kid said, this one young guy. I mean, we're all in our mid-20s. And he asked this question, hey, Pastor Rick, what would be the one thing that you would want any young leader to know? Like, what's the one thing? You're coming toward the end of your career, your ministry, what would be the one thing that you would want someone to start with? And I'll never forget what he said. He said, oh, it's easy. It's easy. It's the opening sentence of my book, The Purpose Driven Life. I hadn't read The Purpose Driven Life. Some of, some of you may have read The Purpose Driven Life. Do you, do you remember the opening sentence of that book? He writes in all caps, it's not about you. It's not about you. The belief that doing good leads to some kind of good in return is ultimately a belief about us. It's a belief about me. It's, it's a belief about, about you. It, it's, it's not a belief about Jesus, obviously, because of what Jesus teaches in his most significant teaching. It's not even a belief about the person on the other side of your good. Because the belief about doing good for good in return would hope that that person or somehow the universe would bring some, some type of good back to you. God's best offer for your best life is to do good for God's glory. No matter what hardship or difficulty you face for doing good in Jesus' name, doing good for God's glory is, in fact, the fruit of God's spirit alive in you. In Galatians 5, goodness is one of those fruits of the Spirit that bear when your life comes in contact with God. This is the upside-down nature of God's kingdom economy, which says less of you and more life. In fact, the kingdom math works out like this. Less of you equals more life or more God, and then more God means more life for you. So therefore, less of you equals more life. And we see this all across Jesus' teachings. Two in particular, oh, several teachings say this, but two in particular, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus says, come to me for life. My purpose is to give you a rich and satisfying life. So if you want life, Jesus says, I am that life. And he says it over and over and again. Listen, none of us want to experience hardship and struggle. Man, none of us want to experience this stuff. I don't want to experience hardship and struggle. I don't, want to, I don't like being ridiculed. I don't, I don't want to live in isolation because I'm chasing after God's will. It feels brutal. It feels isolating to experience those things. But that's truly why. If I if you could feel my heart with anything today. That's truly why God gave us the gracious gift of each other. He gave us the church so that we wouldn't experience the hardship of following his will alone. In fact, you 
are a gracious gift to each other. You are a gracious gift to me. Th this gathering, every Sunday morning when we gather, when you gather with us online, we are experiencing a living, tangible reality of God's gracious gift in our lives. So if you feel alone in the struggle, then let me encourage you to receive the good gift of each other because you're not alone. If you feel alone, then let me give you a gift today. If you feel like, man, I'm, I feel isolated in the struggle, then receive the good gift today. In fact, I want to invite all of you, if you haven't done this, I want to invite you to consider joining a small group and invite some other people to shoulder the struggle with you and then get involved in theirs. Because the beauty of the gracious gift is that it's a reciprocating gift. It's a gift that we receive. It's a gift that we offer. It's a gift that we're able to participate in together. There's a Holy Spirit strength in numbers for where two or more gather in Christ's name together. Because when we gather like this, or even if you and I were just sitting together over a cup of coffee, Christ's Spirit, His promise tells us that He's right there with us. And so I can count on you to shoulder my burden. You can count on me to shoulder yours, that we're not alone in this. When the church lives at its best, walking with one another in the face of hardship when doing good, then the church becomes a tangible, touch and feel, hug, speaking grace of God in our midst. If you need more grace that you can receive today, like tangibly received, then friend, may I invite you to receive the church Receive the church as God's gracious gift to you. A fellow brother in the faith. To call a friend, man, that's God's grace to you. An encouraging word is God's grace to you. A hearty meal, like the barbecue that we shared on Friday night, fellas. Man, that's God's grace to us. Learning about God's living word in the scriptures is God's grace to you in the context of small groups, in the context of incredible ministry environments like student ministry, which meets on Sunday afternoons. You got to get involved in the context of young adult ministry, even in preschool ministry, in the nursery with babies as, as these incredible men and women who care for our littlest, most vulnerable, speak truth over them. That's God's tangible grace alive for us. And it's in that context, whether in person or online, that we receive God's grace to keep taking steps forward on the journey to live into God's best offer for our best life. You want your best life to receive the gift. Receive the gift. The Apostle Paul taught that in the midst of hardship, let's not get tired of doing what is good. Man, it is so wearisome sometimes following in the way of Jesus. I know many of you feel that. I, I really do. And if you're new to Jesus or maybe you're considering Jesus for the first time, don't let the possibility of weariness keep you from receiving your salvation today. But some of you are indeed feeling worn down. And Paul tells us, let's not get tired when we feel. Let, let's, not, let's not give up. Let's not tire of doing what is good. For at just the right time, we will reap a harvest of blessing if we don't give up. Some of you today just need to simply hear that word, don't give up. Don't give up. Don't give up. Don't give up in doing good. Don't give up in walking in the long obedience in the same direction to do God's will. Keep going. Keep going. You aren't alone. We're with you. If you feel, if you feel alone, then get with us.
come with us. Doing good in Jesus' name flows from Christ's love being made known to you through his spirit. Only Jesus is the source of life. And quite honestly, the kind of life that Drake admits that he can't find in, in his rap. Drake, let us introduce you to Jesus. <laughs> if you ever come back to Miami, come by and visit us because there is a source of life and one that doesn't reside just in us. Doing good to glorify your Father in heaven not only shows the source of your life, but also then shows others where to find the source of theirs. In this way, the, the Spirit, like, like, glows your life in the dark <laughs> and shows others that not only am I doing a good will in you, but I desire to do a good will in somebody else. To this you were called. Peter tells us a few verses later after he says it is God's will. He says, to this you were called. You're called to do this because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Listen, when you face hardship for doing good in Christ's name, Jesus knows exactly how you feel. He knows exactly how to comfort you. He suffered the most unjust ridicule for us, all of us, so if we need to face some discomfort for doing good in his name, then so be it. Because when we do, I want to invite you to see that as a way to remember what God did for you in Christ, to revitalize your faith and to reorient your, your perspective from the melting pot to lift above. When you face hardship for doing good, then take that opportunity to remember Christ's suffering for you. Take a deep breath. Stand up tall, lift your head up high and say, I'm, I see you, hardship, and I'm not gonna let you define me. I'm gonna keep on walking in Jesus' name and I'm gonna keep doing some good. When you face hardship for doing good, then let it revitalize you and strengthen your character and mind in Jesus' name. What an, what an amazing opportunity to forge your character, to forge your faith when the hardship arises. Like, just like going to a gym. You know, you, you lift weights in order to build and stretch your muscle and you feel kind of good in it. Sometimes when doing good, when you know that you're taking it on the chin for the sake of Jesus, it's like, man, like, I'm getting to experience just a glimpse of what Jesus did for me. What a gift. What a gift. Last, when you face hardship for doing good, then let your heart become reoriented away from the melting pot to the presence of God's spirit alive in you and in this community. I mean, doing good for God's glory because you choose to live in the way of Jesus shows to all people all of those who might ridicule you or give you hardship that God is in fact doing a good work in you. The struggle, the tension, the ridicule, the exhaustion, man, all that stuff, man, none of that feels good. None of it feels good. But let me also tell you something else. It won't break you. It won't break you. And it won't stop you. It doesn't have to stop you if you keep going because God's got you here for good. God's, God's got you here for good, not to harm you. God doesn't have you here as some joke. God's got you here for good, to do a good work in you. In fact, let your life show 
all people how to give thanks in all circumstances, for this is also God's will for you. So as a church, this is our responsibility. Our responsibility is to show and tell this truth. So let's remember that we're not each other's enemies as we face this together. We're, we're not each other's enemies when we face hardship together, nor are the ones who ridicule us and give hardship to us, nor are they our enemies. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. This might be one of the hardest things to remember. Our struggle is against the evil one who whispers lies to divide us, the father of lies, who whispers lies to divide us, to destroy us. Our, our battle is not against each other, nor is it against those who aren't yet part of this community. And so when we face hardship, let me encourage you. Let's pray for one another. Let's pray for those who ridicule us. And let's do something extraordinary. Let's invite them in and say, listen, you may not understand, but let me show you the why, and let me show you what's also available for you. In Ephesians 2, Paul says that we are created in Christ Jesus. We are his handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works that God prepared in advance for us to do. Did you know that behind the word handiwork in the original Greek is this word poema, from which we derive our English word poetry? As you go about doing your good work, remember you are God's good, living poetry in this world. And that God prepared this work in advance for you. Which means when the hardships do come, which they do, they will, they will come, they will most certainly come. When the hardships come, that God's with you. And that as a church, we are God's gracious gift to each other. Lord, thank you. God, thank you for giving us the gift of your son. God, thank you for not playing a joke on us, but instead giving us real life in the cross, for giving us victory in your resurrection, for your ascension as the king of all kings sitting on your throne. Lord, we give you our praise. We give you our glory. And when the hardships come to us, help us to give thanks in whatever circumstance because you are good, you are for us, and you are doing a work in us. Lord, may we all take a step of faith together to continue on the long road to do your will. And God, may we receive each other as a gracious gift. May we continue to invite more people into this gift so that other people experience it together, so that our, our strength in numbers grow, so that your spirit can become more alive. And so that we see your kingdom come on earth, in Miami, at Christ's journey, as it is in heaven. God, we pray these things in your name. God, we ask these things in your name. And God, we pray for your peace in the midst of it. We pray for your will to be done. For those of you today who want to take your first step with Jesus, 
and you're ready to say, you know what, I'm ready to kind of lift above this melting pot life and I'm ready to get into the real life, into the real goodness that Jesus offers for me, then I want to invite you to pray this prayer with me. God, I'm done today. I'm done with the melting pot. I'm done with believing that my life is all about comfort and ease when all these other things keep on coming my way. Lord, you are the source of life, not me. You, you are the source of life and today I'm giving it to you. I receive your forgiveness. I'm trusting you for the gift of salvation. Help me take your steps with, my steps with you. If you prayed this prayer with me today, then I want to invite you to take your first step with Jesus simply by raising your hand with every eye still closed. Just simply say, today's the day. Thank you. For those of you joining us online, I want to invite you to simply put in the chat, hey, today's the day. I'm giving my life to Jesus. And Lord, for the gracious gift of this church, we give you our thanks and we invite your spirit to continue leading on as we make this prayer in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.